Eno Saris of The Athletic joins us to talk about roster construction in snake drafts, KDS, projections, Command Plus, and more on the premiere episode of Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. A bit of snow here in New York. Nice time to talk about baseball. How are you doing up there in upstate New York? Got a lot of snow, but thinking about baseball keeps us thinking warm, and hopefully the snow will melt away pretty quick. Yeah. Well, we're really excited for our very first episode here on Fangraphs. And I couldn't think of a better guest to have on. He writes for The Athletic. He is the host of the Rates and Barrels podcast. And personally, he was instrumental in getting me to Fangraphs and getting the ATC projections up on Fangraphs. Welcome, Eno Saris. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on. And uh, congrats for being on Fangraphs. That was my big break as well as uh, running the fantasy section there back in the day. Left it in good hands with Paul Sporer, but I'm um, glad to see you're there. Glad to see your projections are on there. Um, you know, between your projections and the bat, I uh, those are the the two that I follow the most. I you know in any in any sort of uh, preseason preparation work that I do, I have uh, those two as columns in in my Excel sheet. So uh, thanks for for doing what you do. Oh, very welcome. And we'll talk a little bit more about the ATC projections a little bit later in the show. But we're going to talk about in our strategy section to start off a little bit about roster construction um, in rotisserie snake drafts. So, you know, um, when you're doing your picks in uh, regular roto snake draft, question always comes up. What matters to you more? Is it picking a value, picking a player of to gain value, or is it making sure that you have a category balance? Now, both are important, but which one do you might put more attention to? You know, I was just reading a piece by Mike Gianella on, on baseball prospectus, and you know, um, you can you can win on value, and I and I think in the past I've focused on value, and you can win on value and just destroy home runs and RBI, and you know, destroy a couple categories and not have a well balanced team. So I think just focusing only on value uh, can leave you with an unbalanced team, and then like depending on. Um, trades in the future uh first of all there's not every format allows trades and then um sort of depending on other people um to give you good value when they know you have way too many homers or whatever it is you know um is is kind of folly so i was trying not to be wish wishy-washy i saw this on the rundown and this is my answer in the early rounds the very first two or three rounds i want value and category goodness like i want sort of five category value i will go for value after that for the mid rounds and then the late rounds are for i don't want to say flyers but they're for category need i will go if i feel like i didn't get a great starting second baseman um i'll go get gavin lux or something you know i'll go get um uh, nick solak i'll go get someone that isn't my starting second baseman, but could be my starting second baseman. And um, so I guess my answer is at the beginning, I want both value um, and need. Then I'll go for value for a while, and then I'll go for need. All right. Ruvain, any thoughts? I think value, value, value early because that's where you can get your most of your accounting stats. And then you can get – I think you can get the balance more, just like Eno said, toward the middle rounds. I wouldn't sacrifice ba uh, uh, value early for balance, but you don't want to be too unbalanced early either. But I think if you see a player there that just is an outlier, he's like no one's taking him, and you think and you feel that his value is really up there and he just keeps sliding, I think you have to grab that player and just – you know, you'll you'll figure out the balance later on. It's a matter of having as much value early and then balancing later. I think. Uh, I think. Yeah, yeah ahead, just to, just to jump in, I think an important uh, thing that just occurred to me listening to Ruben was that that um, util only guys. You know, like Nelson Cruz in particular, but then there's a lot of uh, DH only guys in the past that have been really undervalued. 
And in the middle rounds, you might say, well, he doesn't fit. I don't. I can't play him anywhere. He'll clog up my util. You got to take him. You know, David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Ortiz. You, you you take all those numbers, and then later, if you uh, if you need to take a fifth or sixth outfielder, like an extra outfielder, you know, just load up your bench with the needs that you have, right? And still have that big bat where you have him. So, um, yeah, I totally agree on on value earlier. Yeah, I and mean, that's also the question of positional balance, not uh, also statistical balance. I mean, the thing is that, um, you know, it, it, that, to me it's value, value the whole way, especially in shallower leagues, especially in leagues where you can trade. Unless you're in a deep mono-league format, really value the whole way, even towards the end, because you're going to be able to pick up players on the waiver wire. Someone's going to get hurt mm. on your squad, and you can always fill in some missing statistics from that. Uh, I mean, if you're picking value, value, it means you're covering most of the categories. You could be deficient in a stolen base category. Yes, but it's going to be stolen bases, man. Everyone overvalues stolen bases. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, for, right. because they're, they keep going away. Right, right. But you could pick it up if you need to very low down, right? You, you might not be able to to get the, the strength of the stolen bases early, and you might find that you're better off taking the value earlier and banking the power so you'll be very strong in, in homers, but in terms of the stolen base, you can pick some stuff off, off the waiver wire. It's okay to be slightly deficient in the category as long as you have built up that bank of value. I don't know. Um, the one thing I'll just say is depending on a trade, man, you get to the trade table and they say you're, you're way out in front in homers. They don't mean anything to you. I want you to give me like two huge homer guys for Malik Smith. And you, you kind of want to just – leave the table also even leagues where they allow trading doesn't mean that there's a consistent level of willingness to trade or investment in the league where everyone's um at the table so you you know a lot of times you can go to a league and be like okay there's three guys that or three teams that are willing to trade with me (laughs) you know like three teams that seem active enough and those three teams don't have stolen bases so i'm screwed so you know I, i i you know i I, I I will go to balance at some point. I will yeah. start drafting for need uh, at some point in the, in the thing. But I, I agree with you guys that it, uh, it should be later. And I, I, I value your, your input on, on sort of value all the way through. But, you know, if there's if there's a, a shot I can take, you know, take that waiver wire shot early. You're talking about picking up st- stolen bases on the waiver wire. Why not put that waiver wire pick on your bench? Right. T- two things to add, though. Um if you're in an, uh, in a league with an overall prize, like the NFBC main event, then you have mm. to tilt a lot more towards the statistical balance because you're not going to beat no a thousand too. people. And there's no trading in that league also. So that's, mm-hmm. that's an extreme example of where you have to pay attention uh, if, if, to pay attention there. The other thing I'd say is that when I draft, I don't you can't, you can't ignore uh, uh, statistics. I have a couple of metrics available to me. I have here's the top most valuable players. Here's players that I think that are uh, uh, where it's a big drop in each position. I I know that I have to take a shortstop or there's going to be a huge drop. But I'll also have what I call is an uncorrelated metric. I'm going to bubble up to the top the 10 players who are within range of value who will most balance my portfolio. So if I'm low in steals, it'll show up a steals guy even more. If I'm low in average, it'll probably show a high batting average player a little bit more just so that I get my mind, okay, if I'm going to take a guy for value, tilt it a little bit more towards balancing my portfolio. That's a little bit more advanced, but it's something that you should be thinking about. And the key word you said there was within range of value because if you start reaching too much, then you're going right. to lose value on the, on the pick, and then it does, it's just not worth it. Yeah, I, I would not reach for – you can't reach all that much for, for, for statistics. you got to stick within range of some value. Now, question, are you looking for, in, when, you, when it comes to your pick in a, in a draft, you know, stability or upside? And, and what constitutes stability and upside in your opinion? You know, I had a, I had a labor squad one year where my average age was like 24. <laughs> and I, I've, been, I've looked at um, the relationship between age and uh, on-the-field success for a major league for just like non-fancy reasons. And mm-hmm. what I keep finding is that um, it's like 27 and 28. 
And that's a little bit weird of a, of a number because when we do aging curves, we kind of decide that the peak age is 26 probably. And if it's not 26, it's 26, 27. It's not 27, 28, 29, you know? And uh, the, the, the thought process that I kind of underwent over a couple of years and AL Labor has been really in, uh, one of the most instructive leagues for me in terms of just teaching me how to be better and putting me in the best competition um, was that I was too young. You know, I had too many young guys that weren't established and didn't do what I thought they would do and uh, didn't do that well. So um, I try not to be wishy-washy, but I think you, uh, you kind of want to have uh, what you would call quote-unquote upside. Um, and I think it's a little bit like that sort of positional – uh, need question where I'd rather have established uh, players, especially at the beginning when I'm spending so much draft capital. I'd rather not uh, bank on some sort of progression that isn't necessarily there. Think about Vlad Guerrero. We've been waiting for Vlad Guerrero to break out. The price now matches uh, finally a point where maybe you can buy him this year at the price where you will gain from his breaking out. But you can't buy at the breakout. You know what I mean? You can't you can't say I think Vlad Guerrero who has never hit 30 homers is going to hit 30 homers this year. So therefore I will I will pay for 30 homers. You know what I mean? Right, um right. so uh there's a relationship between um established talent on your team and and some breakout uh breakout talent. Um I I'm a I'm a believer in projections. However, I will say that I think the biggest weakness in projections um, is the player who does not have the established major league track record. And sure. you could just not buy any of those. That is a stance. However, I think you can really benefit if you buy smartly, um, usually towards the bench rounds, usually in the single dollar values in AL onlys, and just buy a couple guys. Like I bought Kyle Lewis last year in AL Labor for $2. The stat cast numbers were there for him. There was a tiny bit of track record. There was a little bit of prospect pedigree, but there was also just the idea that he has a chance to, he has an opportunity to play. He only cost $2 and I got a rookie of the year for $2. So, you know, I, I, you cannot issue all upside just for established talent. I think you, you have to, you have to just be sort of cautiously optimistic at certain points and make sure you don't spend too much on it. A lot of good points there. Ruvain, do you differ at all? Not really. I mean, that age range that you mentioned, you know, between uh, t the 27, 26, 27, when they're peaking, that's about the time when all these players hit free agency, and that's they're usually the year after they have a career year. Look at Anthony Rendon. Look at Trevor Bauer mm -hmm. just had a career year. All these players just had career years, and it's exactly that age. Now, if you want to win your league, if you're trying to get the overall prize, let's say you're going for NFBC and you want to go for the, NF for the overall prize, then 100% try to get as many upside players because one of them may hit or probably will hit, and then you're going to do well. But if you want to be consistent, you want to stay, you want to try to win just your league or, or you're just a home league and you want to just win your home league, stability is the best thing. You get the proven players. You get the players who have less injury risk. Even, you know, I, I, it's so hard to say, you know, this is one guy that I have to have. And that guy will give me stability. And if he does that for you, that's great. But when it comes to rookies that you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, Luis Robert last year, what was he going to do? He was amazing at first, and then <laughs> and then and then he it's, and he came back to earth. But yeah. the, but the whole thing is is that he was projected to that to do this. He didn't hit it, and now th for that same reason, he's not going to be. He may not be a first rounder this year, but for that reason, Fernando Tatis Jr. hit that, and now he's. I see him going number one in some drafts. I mean, that's crazy. You're not going to get any value out of that. There's no upside if you're picking Fernando Tatis Jr. one or two. There's no upside with that. Okay, that, that it, it just doesn't work. Um, when, when, it come, when it comes to building a stable team, a team that's going to be competitive all year, you have to have these stable guys. Yes, upside, but you know, with the upside, there's always risk. Hmm. So I I'll say this: you know, the standard answer that most people give for this is that you know, in your first couple of rounds, you want stability, you want low-risk players. You're concentrating on players with a high floor. Look at the 30th percentile, 40th percentile. 
Uh, and towards later in the draft, you want to get the high upside guys, 80th, 90th percentile uh, expectations, that kind of thing. Um, I actually don't believe that. I actually, well, uh, I shouldn't say believe uh, entirely. Um, I think stability is a much, much bigger thing that should be concentrated on even later in the draft. And I'll give you a little bit of a story parable. Um, for those of you who play NCAA pools, the March Madness pools, where you know you you pick, you make your pick for each round, one seed versus 16 seed, two versus 15, and so on and so forth. Um, <laughs> you, what you what what I tend to do, and I've won a couple of my office pools, is I pick the final four, whoever I think is going to be the final four. You know, I'm a UNC fan, so I'll pick there, and then I will pick every favorite in every single game, period. Like, every favorite the whole way through. And I found that it works because you're not going to win a Final Four, you're not going to win a whole tournament unless you get the Final Four right. And once you get the Final Four right, your highest probability of getting the most points is just going with favorites. There's no need to fool around with everything. So that's why I do that. So th the analogy for baseball is that if you have – um, players lower down, take a guy like Eric Hosmer. He's usually going for two, do two to four dollars in auctions, low rounds, but he always returns some kind of ten dollar production. Have a Starlin Castro, player like that. You know, nobody thinks of him. He's a last, last player on a bench, but he comes up and he, he earns ten dollar profit. If you earn that six dollar profit on all of your late rounds because you're picking stable players, in order to win your league, which you would have to do anyways, you'll get a waiver wire player that jumps up into the $20 player. Well, you'll get another pick, which you had for $15, and they'll jump up the first round. But you need enough of those stable players, even low down, to earn enough money so that when you hit, you can have a base plus all that upside. And so for that reason, I think that stability is much bigger than upside all the way through. Thoughts, mm. Ina? No, I, I I hear that, and it is especially alluring to hear that for someone who plays in mono leagues and deep leagues, because one of the you know one of the things that I do the most often, even in a dynasty league, especially in a dynasty league, you'll find those Starling Castro types uh, for really cheap on the waiver in the late draft, and nobody wants them because they're too old, they're too boring, they don't have that upside. Um, and you can really solidify a bench or the back end of your rotation or the back end of your outfield or whatever. You can really do a lot of damage uh, by just picking a proven commodity. Um, the one thing I think about, though, is that, and, and, I, and I often default to Dynasty because I play that, but I also think about NFBC, which is um, if you look at where uh, Major League players come from they come from a lot of different rounds if you look at bus rates for prospects the the bus rates even on a first round prospect are 40 plus percent yep. so you know a lot of times in dynasties i'll take that information and say oh the bus rate is so high on prospects prospects are to be faded they are to be traded they are to you know i should i should trade these prospects for that usable 29 year old 30 year old because that's a better deal because half of those prospects fade the, the flip side of this coin, though, is that if you look at the top players in the game, they were all top prospects. I mean, the, right. a lot of the, uh, the, the, the potential goes right into the top. So if you look at Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, like all these guys, they were top prospects. And so what you'll find is that you can find a lot of Justin Turners, but you may not find a lot of Mike Trouts. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. And... You know, in certain leagues, you can win a mono league. Um, you can win an AL only league with a bunch of Justin Turners. You can win an NL only. They can, you can't win an AL only league, or not yet. But uh, <laughs> you can win an NL only league with a lot of Justin Turners. But if you're talking about winning the overall prize at NFBC, um, I think a lot of times you you have to take that shot at getting the next Mike Trout and putting that guy on your bench at least and having one shot at glory, if you want to say. You know, you kind of want to play to win your local DC in, in NFBC. I think you want a local, you want to win your local league, uh, but you want to keep an eye on the prize. And I think that I always take a shot in AL labor. I, I buy old, boring guys, and you and I talk all the time. How many times have I bought Eddie Rosario after yep. talking to you about his yep. projections? I think I might be done uh, buying Eddie Rosario, but I think I might have also owned Eddie Rosario three years in a row at AL labor. Right. Um, 
And there's always like I bought Alex Gordon this last year in AL Labor. I didn't think that Alex Gordon would be amazing, but I thought he would just stand out there and play. Right. Um, um, And I didn't spend that Alex Gordon pick on a prospect that never played or or busted. Uh, But the Kyle Lewis thing still sticks with me where it's like I still want to take a couple shots at glory. I want I want my team to be well balanced. I want my team to uh, have stability. Uh, but uh, I cannot resist, you know, Chris list is a big fan of taking a, at least one big shot at glory and taking, having a four or $5 prospect, you know, top five prospects, the bus rate is even smaller. And there's so many, uh, superstars that were top five prospects. So that's my only sort of retort, I guess. Yeah. And Ruvain's big on that also. I know when, when we come to the end of a draft, Ruvain's always like, we got to get one prospect in there. Right. Always, yeah. always. A couple years yeah. ago in NFPC, we, when Trey Turner was coming up, oh yeah, we, I, I said we have to have him, even though we, I think we 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 got him in in the in the auction. Snake. I said we, in the snake. We said we have to have him. We must have him because he's going to come up late in the season and he can put us over the top. We won and our league, and I think we finished ninth overall because we had him also. Yeah. Like we stole bases right. like crazy. And especially, right. oh, that's the other thing, dude. That is really important. Stolen bases come from young players. Age is, right, age, right. The aging curve on stolen bases is terrible. And I'm not saying that every prospect that comes up will still steal bases, but there's a, 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 there's a relationship between youth and stability, right? And so you right. may have to take a shot on somebody that you think is a quality player because you need those stolen bases. You know what I mean? Like, especially yeah, in yeah, Dynasty, yeah. I, I always find myself with sort of like 80 stolen bases when I need 100. Um, and I find that on almost every league, <laughs> uh, but it's right, especially right. true in dynasty when I'm like trying to plug in Lorenzo Kane and be like, please, please, yep. please just steal me 18 bases, please, please. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Young players who have the starting job always a good pick. And I'll add that, you know, any of these, as long as it's sufficiently low enough that you're okay, if you drop a guy, if it's not, per- if it's not happening, it, you can't fall in shot. love. You can't fall in love. And you can't fall in love, yeah. Uh, let's pivot a little bit to uh, KDS, Kentucky Derby-style preferences. I know, uh, you know we've talked a little bit about this. Um, now, uh, in a lot of leagues, uh, the, where you pick in the snake could be random, or maybe it's assigned by how you finished the previous year. But you know, I know in the NFBC and some other leagues, uh, you can select where your preference is to pick. Should you pick in the middle, early, on the wheel, or whatnot? Um, there are advantages and disadvantages for each, but quickly, you know, uh, what is your preference and, and why? You know, going into this, I, I wanted to pick very early, very late. I like the idea of having two choices to make um, and uh, and maybe the ability to press the room and take two starting pitchers in a row or uh, deplete the closer rankings by, you know, taking two in a row. Um, but I saw your research on this and um yours is sort of like the empirical research which is that like you know just traditionally uh teams in the middle have done better and i started thinking about it and um there is there is the idea of like around the horn is two picks in a row however there's a relationship there between picks and information gained and when you have two picks in a row there's no information gained between the two picks Right. When you have two when you have picks that are very far apart, there's a lot of information gained in between. So if you have a, a pick in the middle and then you can watch what's happening in the draft, uh, then you can react to that and, and do something different. Um, and I just think about there's always a run and it's usually closer runs and I'm usually trying to skimp on closers. And I've just gotten in trouble when I'm on the turns when I say, look, there's like four or five good closers left. I will get one of those when we come back. And then there's a closer run and I don't get any. But if you're in the middle, you can say, whoa, that closer run, you know, was a lot more intense than I thought. Let me jump in the middle here and take a closer where I might have been taking a different position. So information gained uh, increases near the middle, uh, picking near the middle, I think. Yeah, uh, very well said. Uh, I agree with all those points. I mean, additionally, uh, you have to reach for players if you're going to be at uh, at the wheel. You if if you uh, are in the middle, there's at least a half round less of reach for players. So in terms of picking up value, value, you're basically gaining half a round of value almost every other turn by picking up in the middle. Um, now, interestingly though, if you are trying to balance your categories or you're trying to b- balance your statistics. It's actually sometimes a little bit easier to do so at the wheel because you've got boom, boom. You know, you can very 
carefully pick the two things that you need to bang up on. But again, I'm all about value, so for that reason, I think that the middle is is superior. Uh, Ruvain, but think about add? your pitching strategy. Yeah. Think about your pitching strategy. One thing yeah. that could be you could be really um, strategic about it in pitching strategy is if you are into a two A strategy, it's a lot easier if you pick at the end. Well, you right. both stole you both stole my points. I mean, we were talking about Sorry. value and balance, and if you're by the wheel, you can you can get the balance, but you don't always get the value. Or you go the other way around, you get the value, but you don't get the balance. So being on the wheel, being even picks one through five, I think are still on either side. I think six through ten in a normal fifteen team league, that's the sweet spot. I think that's where you can have the least amount of. Uh, risk when it comes to value because you're going to get what you want. Um, you're going to have the least amount of risk for balance because you can, like like Eno said, you see everything that's going on. You have so much information, and as long as you know you're you're prepped because if, if if you're not ready, sometimes that middle comes really fast, and you have to be ready for that. When you're by the wheel, or and it's it's you have to you have some time. You have some time to think. You can plan out and everything like that. You just have to be on your toes more and follow everything that's going on. Follow the other teams of what's going on also if you're going to be in the middle round. Yeah. So um, you mentioned, you know, about the, the double A strategy where you pick two aces in the first three rounds, let's say. Um, are you into that? Um, I, I, I know I had an article uh, a, a year or so ago about that it's important to grab an ace, at least one, to anchor your rotation, that you shouldn't settle for a 1A or, or even less than that. You should always grab that top ace because it's a good investment. Well, where are you on, on that discussion of either single ace or double ace? I tried the, the double A strategy um, the last couple of years uh, in a few leagues at least, and I found that I found that article very interesting. I I've been playing since about two thousand one, and for the first five years of playing, I I had a rule that I wouldn't pick a, a starting pitcher before the tenth round. Wow! And the reason it it worked so well back then, um, I I just think that we we weren't that good at telling how good a pitcher was um, that, you know, I could just basically use, uh, you know, raw tools like strikeout rate and BABIP allowed. And between those two be like, this guy is still an ace. He just had a bad year. And uh, the way that the room picked back then was different. And so basically I would, I would pick like three or four pitchers uh, from like round nine until 12 and I'd get a bunch of guys that could jump into uh, ace territory, and they would. But as the leagues uh, have gotten better at evaluating pitching and then also have started to invest in pitching, the entire room moves up. You know, the entire pitching population moves up. If you picked your first pitcher in the ninth or tenth round today, it'd be uh, the equivalent of somebody else's fourth pitcher probably, at least right. third. And so now you're really falling behind because you're not picking out of that same group. Um, you're not picking guys with the same amount of upside. You're picking a ton of risk. And so I've just slowly over the years, um, uh, and like there's also this also this interesting thing. I forget what the name of it is, but there's this idea that if you think you have a strength, a lot of times you'll make your own strength into a weakness by over relying on your strength. So I've thought all along, you know, I'm good at picking pitching. Um, I don't have to invest as much in pitching. I don't have to uh, take pitchers as high. I will find my pitchers. If you take that too far, uh, the, the, what ends up happening is you, you shoot your own strength in the foot. What I should do is maybe not bid the most on pitching in a league, but bid equal to everybody else and have a bit of pit, better pitching staff if I'm good. You know what I mean? Right, right. And so, Recently, I've, I've begun to invest more. I, I think I'm stepping back away um, from – it still is just a very volatile position with more injuries and, and injuries that take longer to heal. Um, and so I'm going to step back away from two aces. But I, I do want a, a top 10 pitcher. And then um, I kind of want a back end from the next 10. And um, then I'm going to start picking my guys uh, already after that. I, when I started making my pitching ranks, I started realizing that the number of pitchers that I think I can depend on used to be 50, and then it was 30, and now I feel like it's 20. So, right. you know, you do kind of want as many as you can of the, of the pitchers that you, depend, that you think you can depend on, that you feel good about. So that's right. the two-way strategy. But um, 
there's questions there's questions for pitchers starting at like think about bauer right if you have bauer is like your eighth pitcher or whatever there are questions around bauer there's a, a fair amount of questions about bauer just look at his track record so if the questions start at eight now are you really going to take two aces Right, 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 right. No, I'm, I'm with you, and and I think the the um the big thing about my research was less about the aces, and and we can argue what what it was an ace. Is it top four, top seven, top eight? This uh-huh. year maybe maybe it's seven, but the big thing is that the whole middle is very unsuccessful. We're talking from pitcher twelve through like forty. Mm-hmm. That whole range is just a blur. Like the the, the success rate is only about twenty to thirty percent from that. You're you're almost better off not paying that premium to go in that middle range. You're better off going to the bottom. But as you say, if it, you can't just wait because everybody's pitching up, everybody is pushing up pitching so much that you'll be completely depleted with pitching without taking an ace. So for that reason, you should take an ace and then maybe hold off a little bit in the middle and then do your shots later on. Yeah, um, try to. And if you are shopping in the middle, just you know, hope that your that your ability to to discern. The one thing also is yeah. that this this ties into you're you're a very sort of projection based guy, and I and I am too. But yeah. uh, projections are worse for pitchers. Right. And that's that's right. tied to your result as well. Right. Correct. Correct. You're you're more sure of the hitting than than the pitching if you're going based on projections. Um, let's start with you uh, on this one, Ruvain. In terms of relievers. Um, so we saw last year Devin Williams, he returned in an NFBC 5x5 setting, $18 of auction value. Incredible. Matt Foster returned $10. Richard Rodriguez returned 7 Mike Mayers of, of the Angels returned 6 Darren O'Day, $6. There was tremendous value from middle relievers that was present. Question for you is, should you, knowing that, sh- that you're going to have relievers ending up there, should you be drafting any relievers, and if so, how? I think the answer is draft, maybe, but roster, yes. Last year, there were 80 pitchers who threw, only 80, who threw 50 innings last year. Now, if everyone is, if let's say we have a full season and and all the pitchers are good to go, some of these pitchers are going to be held back, which means there's going to be more innings for these middle relievers. 50 innings is what a usual is what is around what a usual what a reliever used to get not a starting pitcher so starting pitchers have to build up their strength and a lot of these pitchers didn't pitch if you're going to draft uh, Marcus Stroman if you're going to draft David Price they didn't pitch at all last year so what do you think their inning totally you think David Price was going to throw 200 innings he will not throw 200 innings you're going to have a lot more middle relievers there so you're going to get more middle, middle reliever guys who are going to get wins you're going to get I, you're going to get more middle relievers in the in the top echelon for strikeouts just because there's going to just have so much they're going to have so much more roles in this coming year also i think they haven't announced about the dh yet in the in the national league but i still think that because this season is you know the thing about starting late and everything like that if anything i think there may still be another roster spot or two extra next year just because they want to get an extra reliever there because the pitchers they don't have the arm strength they're going to be if they have mm-hmm. pushed their pitchers they're going to be more injuries than there were and I, I don't think the players the players union would want that i think they'd want an extra roster spot so that each team can roster more relievers and i think that makes the relievers more valuable because they're going to be pitching a lot more innings yeah these are okay. these are great points last year we saw uh, almost three times the the injuries, pitching injuries of a regular season, um, and if you're doing the kind of analysis that you do, Ariel, you'll you'll find that you know I've seen some best ball best ball analysis, some other types of analysis where people are talking about you know winning teams uh, drafted this much pitching or it came their value came from pitching more than hitting. I think that's because there were so many injuries last year that if your pitching staff stayed in one piece, you won. You know what I mean? Right, um, right. And so I think that, that the, the lesson for us is that the, there's going to be more injuries than a normal season next year. Maybe not as many as last season, but I, I think Ruben is totally right that like there's going to be more injuries next year and more starting pitcher injuries. And I've been asking player development staff around the league, I've been asking coaches and, and farm directors, how are you going to decide – how many innings that you these guys can throw? We just had an article about this because of the lost minor league season with Britt Garoli and Melissa Lockhart where, on the Athletic, where we just we asked people like, "How are you going to decide these things?" And one guy said, "You know, we used to do it uh, where we just laid the stuff out and we looked at them, and if they looked like they were generally healthy, we added ten percent in terms of innings, and we had no idea why we did it." 
right, <laughs> we right, just right. added ten percent. But you can't end to add ten percent this year because what if the guy threw sixty innings last year? You're not going to have guys throwing sixty six innings next year. You know, and that's not going to be enough. So right. we're going to have guys who jump up in innings. We're going to have some guys who get injured, some guys who don't. We won't know what's going on. And I think those relievers will soak up a lot of that value. Plus, there's just the general trend in baseball towards bullpenning towards taking the starter out in the fifth like like snell in the in the in the world series so the more you do that the more you have these guys the one thing i will say though is i think Ruben is also right to say not to draft the guy uh because relievers year to year are super hard to project and a middle reliever makes it even harder and then second of all just you know and i can ask you guys this just from you know running a bunch of teams like i did did you do you think that you had an idea about which types of relievers would would have the most wins? I, I thought it'd be like Jonathan Loisaga types, but it ended up being, um, you know, like your fourth setup guy. I don't know. It, it uh, there was no rhyme or reason for me in terms of uh, relievers leading the league in wins. I didn't I didn't quite uh, yeah. see a rubric that I could follow. I don't know. Maybe you guys spotted something. No, I, I haven't for relievers for wins. I, mean, I, I take reliever. I like to take a middle reliever as my last bench spot. I, I wouldn't draft a, a, a middle reliever uh, only for your last bench spot or a, a, an early season uh, pickup off the waivers. Uh, the reason why I like to have one is because I would rather go early in the season instead of having seven starting pitchers, I'll throw in an extra middle reliever so that my ERA and, and whip mm -hmm. ratios are a little bit padded, especially Safer. when you don't know yeah, you don't know how starters are going to be in a season. So I'll be a little bit safer earlier on. And you can always make up some extra strikeouts and wins later on by putting extra starters later on when you know which teams are good. And I know I can pitch against the Marlins and, or whoever what you want to do. Um, so that's how I use them. But I, I wouldn't spend any, any draft capital. And uh, wins are just too fishy in, 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 in total to even, even look at. If you um, think about it. It takes it can take up to ten days to know um, even what your starting pitcher's velocity is, right? It right, might take right. two starts to know if the guy is really up or down in velocity. You know, you might know on the second day of the season if your reliever is up or down in velocity. So early on last season, we knew Hansel Robles was a problem. We probably knew it in the spring. We knew it, you know, from his first appearance, but. You know, when it came to other starting pitchers, if they were up or down, we kind of had to wait a little bit. And sometimes it's better to wait with that guy on your bench. Correct. Correct. Um, question. You know, we've been drafting in leagues. Uh, we as a community, closers pretty early. I mean, I remember even just a year or two ago, fifth round, sixth round, there's a closer run. Uh, and we've we've all seen, especially this year, that closers are not a great investment <laughs> especially looking at the Tampa Bay Rays. I mean, I don't think I would even want to draft a single Ray this year. <laughs> Who knows how many they're going to get. Do you think that as a community we should be still be drafting closers this early on? It's just been a problem for me, you know, all the way through. You know, I've just never really been able to align closer value with the values of my spreadsheet. I've always had to pump up a, a number or two. Um, recently in AL Labor, you know, I have bought in the last two years, I bought a Chapman and Liam Hendricks at the top of the market, sort of $18, $19. And, uh, they've been worth the investment, but I, I can't think that like, uh, it's a little bit like the starting pitcher thing. I, you can convince me to buy an ACE closer, a top five closer. You can convince me that's worth it. But even now, um, at the top of you know, the, the closer market now, a role Chapman is getting older. That fastball velocity is just sort of, you know, inching towards a place where I might, I might think it's, a, you know, a little bit down. And then I just could see him kind of falling apart at one, uh, one year. Liam Hendricks came out of nowhere and could go back to nowhere. I feel like, you know, so um, I just think generally uh, I really pick my spots with closers. And for the most part, um, you know, I think there's something like uh, sixty percent of the saves in a given season are on the wire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather get those. The problem with the wire, though, too, is like you know, do you go full FAB early on on a guy and think I'm going to win this guy and he's going to be the closer, or do you do a lot of sort of mid FAB bets and be like, 
you know, I'm going to just spend a little, a little bit here and here and here and here and hope that one of these guys ends up being the closer because there's FAB strategy to think about too. You could spend all your money on saves and still end up mid table in saves. Um, right, so you don't right. necessarily want to spend all of your FAB chasing saves. Right. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the short answer is that it really doesn't matter what we think is correct. We know it's not true that closers are, are fickle, but you know, you still need saves as a category. And if everybody is buying them early, it, there's a what I call a market premium for it, right? Yeah. You know, it, it saves your pay at an auction. You know, you're going to pay ten dollars at least for some top closer. So everybody, since everybody's paying it, it's okay to pay it, right? It's just a, a, it's the cost of doing business. It's somewhat similar to catchers, right? Just to get a, a top catcher, steal. Right. Same thing. You're paying yeah. a premium just for that stat or category or position. So in that sense. It's okay to pay that. Now, you don't want to be ahead, far ahead of the pack. You don't want to have a closer and pick him in the fourth round and find out everybody's picking the rest in the seventh. That would be you're, you're paying a too much of a market premium. But if the first couple of closers are going in the fourth and you're able to get a mid-level closer all the way in the eighth, you're not paying as much of a market premium as everybody else, and then you're going to be in a better position for doing that. Um but, you know, I will say, though, that fab uh, closers have been a, a decent investment on the waiver wire. If you look at the return on investment for closers by spending somewhere between 5 and 10% of your fab budget, it's actually turned out pretty good. So you need to have some balance. And the last thing I'll say is that closers, to me, are quantity over quality. You're, you're not buying them for some of the – you're not really buying them for the ratios, although they help. You're buying them for the save category, so I'd rather it's take one darts. Buy, yeah. yeah, just take darts at three, four closers at the end for a couple of dollars instead of spending something at the top. Hope that two stick, and then pick up one on the waiver wire. That's how I would do that. Ruben, well, anything to add? Yeah, there's actually something a little bit different that I'm going to put in. I like closers or relievers who have a high strikeout rate, and with a job insurance. Last year, the top four closers with the most strikeouts. You had. Trevor Rosenthal had 11 saves with 38 strikeouts. Liam Hendricks had 37, uh, 37 strikeouts with 14 saves. Kenley Jansen had 33 strikeouts with 11 saves. And Edwin Diaz, six mm -hmm. saves, but he had 50 strikeouts. 50. All right? That was more, more far and away than anyone else. Josh Hader had, all, had 13 saves with only 31 strikeouts. So if, you wanna, if you're going to draft high, I would say the one target you should be looking for is someone who has stri a high strikeout mm -hmm. like, like, like Diaz because you may get something else out of him as well. Otherwise, you know, Trevor Rosenthal was near the top of the league in saves, so you can get him, like you, also, like you guys said, on the, on the waiver wire. But if, if you really, really are desperate and you want to make sure you get a closer, you have to look for job assurance, look for a high strikeout rate, and I, th I see only one player that fits that right now. Chapman? No, Edwin Diaz. Diaz. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, Diaz, he, he led all relievers Chap in strikeouts last year. Chapman's still there, but, you know, it, it's, you know, every injury and every tiny bit of fastball tick. The, you know, Derek Hardy did a lot of research on this. Uh, I tried to, to follow that research in terms of what predicts closer change, and you're totally right. It's strikeout rate, um, usage. Usage is number one. So if you're looking at FAB, who pitched the eighth? That's actually number one. But if you want to look at something beyond that, if, if a couple guys pitch the eighth, uh, then the other thing is fastball velocity and strikeout rate. So it follows actually from that, that before the season, you should be looking at fastball velocity and strikeout rate. Um, there was a finding back in the day that lefties were closers less often than you'd expect. But I think that might be changing because of the three, uh, three batter rule because you don't see as many Oliver Perez lefty-only types. So if you have a lefty, he's likely to be good against both hands, and he can just be a closer. You know what I mean? And you're not, you're not saving a lefty for, for one batter anymore, so you don't need to worry if your closer is a lefty or righty as much, I don't think. So I'm not sure if that's still true anymore, but I think it's still true that velocity and strikeout rate are what you're looking for in a closer. Exactly. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the ATC projections and some other projections. We have a, a quest, uh, mailbag question uh, from Wint who asks, what are the best projections to use? And I know you mentioned both uh, ATC and, and the bat. Maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, especially the bat and uh, a little bit about ATC, and I'll, I'll interject uh, as well. You know, I, I, I like them both. Um, 
you know, one of the things that is really cool about ATC is that it's a meta projection. And so it's going to look at all the other projections, see what they do well, and kind of uh, pull from the correct projection at the right time, in, in, in essence, by saying, okay, well, this one does this well, and this one does this well, so I'm going to wait, you know, steamer for this and zips for that or whatever. Um, and that's really, that's a smart thing to do. And I think the one thing that I really, I really respect Derek Cardi as an analyst as well, uh, because he kind of, in essence, made his own uh, projection system, the BAT, a meta projection system by creating the BAT X, which is a stat cast based projection system. And then he kind of looked at his two projection systems and said, almost like a meta projection system again, where he said, which of these two does better, you know, in this situation, this over this type of on this stat and this stat. So when he releases his the, the bat projections in the end, um, it basically is a meta projection system of its own. Um, and uh, and in, in general, uh, what I like about both systems is they're uh, two of the best at because you're 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 waiting uh things uh by system um they're the two best at incorporating stat cast stats they're in th that's the best new stats they're stabilized the quickest we're coming off of a short season and you know knowing that something like barrel rate stabilizes pretty quickly max exit velocity stuff like that stabilizes quickly that's going to make your projection system better so that's why i respect both of those projection systems that's why i use both of them yeah, and I just had an article come out uh, uh, yesterday, today or yesterday on uh, Fangraphs uh, that uh, took a, a little bit of a deeper dive into uh, how the Bat X improved from uh, the Bat from Derek Hardy's model. You can actually see which players uh, that it really uh, went up or went down and why, and it gives you a little bit of a clue into the Bat X. Uh, and uh, the Bat X actually just edged out ATC for the uh, best projections of 2020. Um, let, let's say you're using auction dollars. You've got 260 auction dollars. While most projections will, in a fantasy sense, will get you to draft $260 for $260 of auction value, ATC returned about $280. The bad X went a little bit more and returned $290. So uh, good to use from a fantasy baseball sense uh, to create excess value. And it's going to be the, really important coming off of the short season, I think, to get the right yeah. projection system. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, and, and I was surprised that ATC did so well in the short season because the whole theory about ATC is that, you know, it, it's great in the long run. It's great in the average. So you would mm. generally want to see a full 162 games to make sure that ATC comes out the best. But it actually did very well even in the short season, uh, which really gives me a lot of confidence, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, if it's, if it's going to if it's gonna pull the best – aspects of every projection system out there it's probably pulling the most root not reactive that sounds bad but like the most um sensitive parts of those projections right the ones that are capturing the most signals so uh right in, in right. some essence it's maybe uh, less surprising yeah and and the best part of atc is uh not just the buy signal but the pass signal so a lot of times when you look at projections there's a a, a player that oh wow it looks really great you got to buy it it's so much value based on the numbers but on the other end you'll you'll go away from bad decisions oh garrett hampson i know that, that that's the one player that i know so many people fell into that trap oh he's <laughs> enticing and atc always showed a strong pass uh, you'll get more of those passes correct on ATC than anything else. And these days in playing fantasy baseball, it's more about not losing value than even gaining value, uh, which which really helps. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, not not blowing the big the big bucks is as is, is big as, as finding the value, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on to uh, Command Plus. Uh, I know that you use this in a lot of articles that you write and in your fantasy evaluations uh, and so on and so forth. Can you just take a, a minute or so and explain to everyone what, what Command Plus is and maybe how to use it in uncovering some undervalued pitchers? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's cool about Command Plus is that uh, it's it's pretty reactive. And, and like it, it's uh, it, it returns some signal very early on. And the reason it does is that um, it asks – the question the command plus asks is, is the pitcher doing what he wants to with the ball, which is very different than zone rate or corner. Like, you know, how much does he hit the corners of the strike zone or walk rate? 
those things are dependent on the umpire. They're dependent uh, very much so on pitch type um, and uh, the hitter, the, 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 the hitter that they're facing. If you think about it, pitching low and in to the corner uh, is not always a good idea. Uh, there are pitchers, there are hitters that can, that can um, then smack the crap out of that ball. You know? So, um, you know, low and in is good to one guy and not good to another. And so command plus asks a little bit uh, tougher of a question, which is just, um, you know, who, who is good at these, at, at like putting the ball where he wants to. Um, and, you know, I've actually found, you know, I've, I've been trying to use it for a couple of years. Uh, to me, um, I'm trying to pull apart stuff and command. I've, I've, I've seen enough of what teams do internally. Uh, I've worked with uh, future and former um, analysts for teams. So I know that this is what teams are doing, that they're trying to boil uh, pitchers down to a stuff and command number so that they can pull away all the noise that comes with balls in play and umpires and versus hitters and this and that. Uh, especially after a season in which the NL Central only, you know, played Central teams, you know, I think it's really important to uh, kind of try and strip away a lot of that noise. But what I found over the years um, is that it's uh, almost best at telling me uh, who to avoid. It's kind of funny. It's coming off that ATC comment. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it may not always be obvious uh, when someone has reliever level command um and i'm thinking about someone like josh james um going into last season as a reliever it looked like he had four pitches um you know the kind of stuff that you could totally believe in and yeah maybe his command wasn't great but uh his stuff was going to be so outstanding that when he got the chance to be uh, a starter we a lot of people spent a lot of money on him uh, but by command plus he had an 86 or an 84, I think, which is just really, really low. Um, and by the time you get down to the mid eighties, it's all relievers. Josh James, this past season had an 86 around him is John Gant, uh, Trevor got, uh, Edwin Diaz, uh, Gregory Soto. They're fine relievers, but there's a reason they're relievers. Um, and what I found was I, I tried to use command and stuff to predict innings pitch per appearance. And what I found was there's a shelf and you really want to have above a 90 command plus uh, to be uh, to be a starting pitcher. So that's relevant for a few players. Um, you you see sub 90 command plus on. Um, let's see here. I'm, I'm, I'm just going through Luis Patino uh, had a 80, 86 last year. Uh, Luis another one uh tyler glass now had an 87 and he only has two pitches uh, i think that factors in michael lorenzen had an 86 denilson lamette had an 86 and only had two pitches dylan cease last year who had maybe i think he had the worst strikeout minus walk total uh in baseball which is another really strong tool uh a really strong statistical tool uh you you pair the bad k minus bb and the 85 command plus and I've been a guy who said Dylan Cease has great stuff. I believe in him. I'm all in on Dylan Cease. At this point, I'm not, I'm not buying at his price. Uh, it has to be super, super cheap uh, for me to buy in. And that's because of uh, the command that he's showing. So, um, you know, I kind of use it on the, on the edges. I'm, I'm a little bit more stuff forward, but, like, you know, I want to I see some representative command. Uh, and when you have uh, plus stuff and plus command, um, then you were Jake DeGrom. He is, uh, you know, on that list, yeah. and you are Brandon Woodruff, and the very best have plus stuff and plus command. Right, right. Obviously, uh, you know, getting both. Um, question for Ruvain here. Um, you know, I know that playing with you, we're big on trying to even draft pitcher ratios, ERA, whip. Can you draft ERA, whip versus drafting counting stats? Is that a thing? Uh, I'm thinking of players like Zach Greinke, Kyle Hendricks that are always fantastic in ERA, ERA whip. Um, Hendricks even more so where he doesn't have a tremendous strikeout ability. Um, can you do that? You can if you decide 
you want to do all the if you get the good ratio guys, you can do two star pitchers and get all the strikeout rates, get all the strikeouts later in the season. You don't necessarily need to worry about blowing up your ERA and WHIP if you have those ERA stabilizers like a Kyle Hendricks, like a Zach Greinke. Now Zach Greinke back in the day had ERA, he had WHIP, and he was also striking out 200 people. So he had it. He had it all going on at one point, even with the decrease in velocity, which these teams have every spring. Um, but as long as you're able to have those base guys who are able to balance your team with ERA and WHIP, then you should be okay. That's where these middle relievers come in, because a lot of these middle relievers, their ERA and WHIP will be lower than the star- than the starters, and that's where you can actually make up the counting stats with both the middle relievers a little bit na- nowadays with the wins and the strikeouts, but you can also get those two-star pitchers and not have to worry about blowing up your ERA and WHIP for the entire season. Yeah, I I mean, I, I'm I'm in love with guys like Kyle Hendricks, who just have a fantastically stable ERA. You know, his his highest ERA in the last five seasons, Hendricks, three point four six. I mean, he in terms of NFBC roto value, he hasn't had less than a twelve dollar value for a year uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, he's even had a, a, a plus twenty dollar value a couple of times. Um, so you're not getting that strikeouts, but you're getting that so such stability. And the the greatest thing about Hendricks is that he goes deep into games. Over his career, he's averaged over six innings per game started. This year, he averaged over six and two thirds innings. Um, when you're looking, especially for pitchers who are going to accumulate the wins, which mm-hmm. is not a category that it's very easily to to pick from. You, you really want to concentrate on players who go deep into games and who are on good teams. Uh, so And guess know. who goes deep into games? Guys with a high command plus and a lot of pitches. Here, right. here are guys that have multiple pitches and, and, and good command plus, and you'll see that it's not as dependent on velocity, I think. Zach Gallen, Masahiro Tanaka, Aaron Nola, uh, Chris Paddock didn't have a great season, but I'm going to bet on him again because I see that command plus. Uh, Tyler Molly is another guy I'll bet on because I see command plus and an out pitch and many pitches. But Hunjin Ryu is up there. Kyle Hendricks, Jacob DeGrom. Marco Gonzalez led the league in decisions the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons he can do that is he has enough pitches uh, and enough command to, to go into the game. Dallas Keuchel is throwing 89 miles an hour. Uh, he's in the top 25 in command plus, and that's that's part of why. Another buy that I have based on command plus is Luke Weaver. Uh, multiple pitches, good command, uh, hopefully good health coming back this year. Definitely a low low price tag. Yeah, and uh, um, speaking about Marco Gonzalez, I do think there's some regression for him this year, but uh, I'm very high on him. I have a statistic that, that I've created called WPDI, which is somewhat similar to, to CSW, but it looks at uh, whether pitchers are getting deceptive swings inside or out of outside mm-hmm. the zone. Marco Gonzalez is one of the highest pitchers in getting swing and misses outside of the zone. So even though he's throwing much softer stuff than a lot of people, he's very deceptive, and he's getting people to just chase his stuff. Uh, that's one of the reasons why he's uh, really propped up and, and he's able to go deep into games um, and strike out more batters than he should. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's do one mail, mailbag question here. Uh, here's a fun one here from Zach, and he says, Ariel, you score every softball game that you play in. Do you account for reaching on errors in your rate stats? I assume that there are a lot of errors in B-League <laughs> rec baseball. Um, yeah, so I play in, uh, I guess you call it B-League, uh, recreational softball. It's not high arc. It's modified. So we're talking, you're throwing the ball hard. It's strikeouts. And I, I am a pitcher. So uh, I, I do play that. Um, so my answer t- to you is I actually do account for uh, reach on errors. And of course you do. You want ERAs. <laughs> you want to lower your ERA. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I don't account for it on the pitching side because that would destroy my ERA. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> here's what I do on the hitting side, though. If it, and I, I, give this, I attribute this to Bill James. Bill James has a very good uh, statistic called run, uh, runs created. Um, where if you take the total bases times the OBP, or in long form, at-bats times slugging times OBP, you'll Mm -hmm. actually get roughly the number of runs that a team scores. Um, If you look at that and compare that formula to what you actually get in B-League baseball, um, you get a lot more runs in actuality. Uh, And the reason, of course, most of it has to do with with, uh, – the errors, the, right, the errors that come on. But also contact, right? Teams that put the ball in play are better. 
Um, right, right. Uh, but a lot of that, in terms of the, the statistics, comes from errors where people are beating it out or whatnot. But anyways, mm. I, I found out that if you consider a reached on error to be a half of, of a base, so you know, if you give for slugging, if you're giving a single is one and a double is two, a triple is three, if you count a reached on error as a half, that actually is very close to the, the ballast that will make Bill James's formula close to reality. So mm-hmm. I count in my league a reach on error as a half a base. There you <laughs> go. Now, now when, when are these players drafted in fantasy leagues? That's what I really want. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a yeah. fantasy league where I'm allowed to uh, draft anybody uh, anywhere. Uh, there's no rules on, on the player universe. So maybe I'll draft you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a contact hitter. Uh, high OBP, not a lot of power. So if, if that plays well. Well, it's an OBP league, so here you go. <laughs> you draft, you oh, there draft, you go. There you go. You can draft uh, Manny Ramirez. Manny Ramirez is playing in Australia, so I guess you can draft him, can't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, although he's injured, I think. Uh, which brings us to uh, Ruvain's injury report. Ruvain, who do you got for us? Okay, so what I'm going to do for the first couple episodes this year is I'm going to go over some injuries that are uh, repeat players who had surgery at the end of the year and recovering, and I'm also going to throw in some a trickle of other injuries that are occurring real time. So I'm going to start with Paul Goldschmidt. Goldschmidt underwent a procedure to remove a bone spur from his right elbow when the season ended. He was dealing with a chronic elbow issue throughout the entire of last season. He's expected to be ready when 2021 starts. You know, you, manage, you mentioned Josh James. He had hip surgery to repair a labral tear when the season ended. He's wow. supposed to be out six to eight months. Late April or early May, probably the earliest recovery Jeez. time. Zach Wheeler figured out how to put on his pants and had successful right middle finger s- fingernail <laughs> resection procedure performed in October. He's expected to be ready in spring training. That thing was uh, gross. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, Luis Perdomo. Um, he underwent Tommy John surgery in October. He is going to miss the 2021 se- uh, season. Luis Severino, uh, Severino's rehab is supposedly going well, and he could return to the Yankees sometime Jul- June or July. Brandon Belt, Belt had un- he underwent surgery to have a bone spur removed from his right heel mid-October. There was no timeline for his recovery, but he should be good for the season starting. Um, Mike Clevenger, Padres GM, AJ. Preller said that he doesn't expect Clevenger to require off-season surgery, but he was dealing with elbow and bicep issue and a drop in velocity, so that's something just to watch. Uh, Nick Madrigal had a sh- had left shoulder surgery in mid-October. He's expected to require five to six months to recover, so he may not be ready for the beginning of the season. Nelson Lamette, another guy you mentioned, A.J. Preller also said that he is expected to require off-season surgery. He had a PRP injection performed, and that seemed to be, he seems to be responding well to that. Luke but Voigt, he, has been di- he was diagnosed with plantar fasciitis and required a PRP injection as well. Um, that's an injury that could linger, and you saw it linger, and you saw it zap his power during the playoffs. That's something to watch. Now, two players who were actually injured in the Dominican League um, this offseason, Juan DeFranco, he was diagnosed with bicep inflammation and shoulder soreness. He was playing in the Dominican League, and then he got an injury, and then they, then they decided to shut him down. Another prospect, Julio Rodriguez. He began having quad discomfort in the Dominican League, and then they shut him down. Uh, good stuff there, Ruvain. And uh, you'll uh, you'll hear Ruvain uh, all uh, off season and all season long giving you the injury updates with uh, some fantasy relevance as well. Um, you know, thank you so much for for being on the show. Our very first Beat the Shift podcast on Fangraphs. Um, why don't you tell us where everyone can uh, read your work and uh, listen to you? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter at E N O S A R R I S and over at the Athletic. Uh, if you follow my Rates and Barrels podcast which you can actually listen to free on Apple if you want to take us for a free ride at first. Uh, I think that's the best deal, and people don't know, always know about it. I think the best deal is if you follow the podcast and try to uh, sign up for The Athletic from there. I can't speak exactly what it is right now, but it uh, it's the best deal that I know of is usually through the podcast. So check the Rates and Barrels page and see what the deal is from there. Uh, that's the best deal that I can think of. Um, and the most recent piece that I had that's uh, worth uh, shaking a fist at, hopefully, is I wrote about uh, popularity of players and how, um, you know, the relationship between the quality of a player and the popularity of a player on fan graphs. And I think there might be some fantasy applications to this. 
because and, and it's actually kind of funny it's the kind of player that uh i think atc would love um a, a guy like uh, anthony rendon and alex bregman two players that are projected to be good players next year got way fewer hits on their player pages than you'd expect um, just given uh, the relationship between uh, player quality and popularity on fan graphs. And um, I think there is a sort of a niche of player that's sort of between 27 and 30 that hasn't changed teams recently. I mean, I know Rendon has, but they're, you know, if they haven't been transacted recently um, and they are not Mike Trout, Mookie Betts level, that sort of good but not great 28-year-old, um, those players uh, might be undervalued. You know, people will be reaching for Fernando Tatis um, when, um, you know, there are uh, Alex Bregman types going uh, much later or, or for much cheaper. So, um, you know, it, there was something there, I think, for fantasy players. And we talked about it on the podcast and, and I had a piece where I sort of graphed player quality by popularity and, and tried to talk about the reasons for it. It also, there's some stuff there about, uh, markets, you know, I think Yankee players, uh, Dodger players sometimes um, will get bit up a little bit, um, and you'll find some value on the Oakland Athletics and the Tampa Bay Rays of the world. Really good stuff, and uh, everyone here should be following Eno and reading his work on the Athletic and listening to the absolutely fantastic Rates and Barrels podcast that he does with uh, Derek Van Riper and Britt Giroli. Uh, uh, Ruvain, how about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out updates of injuries, whether they had surgery in the offseason, also during the season. I do that as well. I also have a weekly in-season article on Rotoballer discussing the injuries as well. And my name is Ariel Cohen. You can read my work on at Fangraphs, at CBS Sportsline, and at Rotoballer. And you can find the ATC projections, which will come out in mid-January over at Fangraphs. Follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. Thank you so much, Eno, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it on our first ever episode here of Beat the Shift on Fangraphs. And from all of us, see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. Follow us on Twitter at Beat underscore shift underscore pod.